Hey Shepherd, welcome to Digital Worship. I'm Pastor John Carolis, one of our associate pastors, and it's good to be with you as we finish up our series Planted, uh, Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of God and life within it. What does it mean that we follow our great teacher? What does it mean that we put our faith in Jesus? And in a sense, all of these um, different messages and different parables have been leading us to a point where, uh, where now everything is on the line. It's all been leading up to this. And Jesus lays out in this parable for today, the parable of the tenants, or in the translation we'll be using, the parable of the evil farmers. Um, Jesus lays out really the narrative of what happened when he came into the world and the response of the people that held the power at the time. So we're going to hear Jesus' message, and we're going to understand how the salvation story, the salvation narrative fits into it but also what it does to you and me where it leaves us at a point where there's really no neutral option and we're driven to a point of decision, much like last week where we were kind of forced to pick a side or make a choice. Um, this time, that is not just a rhetorical device that, God is, that Jesus is using in his telling of the parable. It's actually what the parable does to anyone that hears it. What is your opinion? What is your stance? Where do you, um, where do you end up in your opinion of who the son of the owner of the vineyard really is. So we'll get into that. And before we do, I do want to make sure you have the context of where this parable falls in the Gospel of Matthew. It's after, um, it's after Palm Sunday. So Jesus has come into the city and he is now in the middle of Holy Week where we know that at the end of these five days, Jesus will be betrayed. He'll be beaten. He'll be mocked. He'll be put to death on a cross. And Ultimately, everything that he has been saying will happen, happens, all in the span of this week. And we've been jumping around the Gospel of Matthew quite a bit over the course of the summer, and there's still some parables to come in the book itself. But chapter 21, where it addresses Jesus' interaction specifically with the church leaders, is helpful to keep in mind when we consider even today's parable. So it starts out, Jesus' authority is being challenged by the church leaders. They want to know who he thinks he is. Why does he think he can teach these things and predict these things and say these things? And Jesus aligns himself with the last true prophet, John the Baptist, who in turn is aligning himself with God the Father. And Jesus is saying, hey, how about you tell me whether John the Baptist was someone you could trust because he was from heaven, or if he was a crazy man out there by himself. And then, after they decline to answer that question, Jesus gives them the parable of the two sons that we talked about yesterday, uh, last week. Not yesterday, last week. And in that parable of the two sons, both of them are in the wrong because our intentions and our actions cannot of their own accord add up to be enough to satisfy God's standard. And then we come to this parable. Jesus really is telling the story of himself, who he is and the role he plays in the grand history of the people of God. So let's listen to Matthew chapter 21 as we hear the parable of the evil farmers. Now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed the servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him. But the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, Surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, Here comes the heir to this estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard ret returns, Jesus asked, what do you think he will do to those farmers? 
The religious leaders replied, He will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. Then Jesus asked them, Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. When the leading priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. Maybe you've heard this parable before. It can be helpful to kind of break down the characters and, and the roles just so that historically we can kind of get a grip on what's going on, who is who, and, and what's really the point. So the vineyard is the, the, the people of Israel, God's chosen race. The owner is God the Father himself, the one who established them. The prophets that Jesus, I should say, the prophets that came after Jesus, that told and, and, and cleared the way for Jesus to come into the world, that's who the servants in the story represent. They went into the vineyard. They went to the people of Israel. They gave the people God's word. And yet, time and time again, they were rejected. They were put to death. They were ignored. And so finally, God, uh, in, in the role of the owner of the vineyard, sends his son to collect his share of the crops. And the son, sadly, is dragged out of the vineyard, beaten, put to death. And now the father has to reconcile with the, the tenant farmers as to what he's going to do to make things right. Now, the re religious leaders at the time, they recognized that uh, Jesus was um, painting a picture with a very clear right answer. Well, the owner of the vineyard needs to put to death those that have totally um, ruined his, his crop ruined his life, ruined his, his servants, ruined his son's very own life taken from him. And they knew they deserved nothing but a horrible death by the owner of the vineyard who had come with, you know, a, an army of a, a mob ready to, to enact justice for them. And then Jesus brings up Old Testament prophecies. And he says, haven't you heard that the stone the builders rejected is now the cornerstone? And they begin to realize that he is talking about them. And he's talking about himself. He identifies himself as the son who has come into the vineyard to make good on the owner's need to, to receive what is rightfully his. And the religious leaders, well, they're the evil farmers who have turned against the one that put them in charge. So Jesus declares, look, things that you have been given will be taken from you and given to others who will trust in the promises of God, who will obey his word and will, and who will do what they are instructed to do. And they, realizing what Jesus has said about them, accusing them of corrupting God's word, accusing them of rejecting the Son of God, accusing them of turning their backs on the one whom they have made an entire life trying to follow, well, they want to put him to death immediately. They want to arrest him, but because of the crowds in Jerusalem at the time, they were afraid. And in that little detail, we begin to realize what is at the root of the issue. You see, for the religious leaders, God was no longer the priority in their life that he was called that he had called them uh, to be. In other words, they let their sense of self, the pride they had in their own position, in the authority and power that they held, they let that get in the way of their relationship with God. They began to become almost servants to the idea that keeping the crowds happy was all they were meant to do. And as long as the people were happy, they retained their control, their power, their wealth, and everything went forward just fine. Jesus comes into the world and he totally interrupts that picture. 
He says, that's not the way that this was meant to be. In fact, uh, this is going to be wrested away from you and given to somebody who is willing and ready to do the things th the way that God has intended them to be. Now the question might be, okay, so I think I understand the parable. I think I understand the story. God wants us to do things His way. God uh, wanted the religious leaders to honor His Son when He arrived and they rejected Him. Therefore, there's going to be some justice to be paid. But what does that mean for me? Well, you see, the story really puts before us a proposal that Jesus is either the true Son of God come into the world to reconcile all things back to His Father, or He's a nobody and should be ignored and rejected. And the way that Jesus tells the story, there's really no way for you to land anywhere in the middle of those two options. Because underlying each of them is a realization of who God really is. If you are going to accept the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, His earthly uh, human representative, the, the Son of God who is joined together in eternity with His Father, who uh, are there with the Holy Spirit, a holy trinity uh, over all things, involved in the creation, in the sustaining, and in the completion of creation of the universe, then that's who is in charge. That's who calls the shots. That's who we follow. And if you think that Jesus is just kind of a nobody, just somebody who brought some helpful thought and then ultimately is no more special than you or I, well, we actually, in that mode of thinking, have elevated ourselves to the place that God alone should be. We consider ourselves to be the ultimate authority. We consider our judgment to be that which we should order our lives after. We consider ourselves to be the one that should be calling the shots and making the decisions. And we find ourselves caught between two decisions, either I am God or God is God. And when Jesus came into the world making his claim, it cost him his life. People that heard that message didn't want to believe it. And the ones that held power, they put him to death and they convinced the crowds to want that very same thing. And it reveals to us, you and I who read the text and hear the story today, that we very quickly fall into the exact same boat. We would put Jesus to death too. We don't have it within ourselves to trust in his promise. But listen to this. Jesus actually is God. And so when he was put to death, he did not stay dead. And it's in that resurrection that our certainty of his position as the Son of God and as an eternal authority over all things really is placed. If Jesus came back to life, then he must not be like the rest of us because he has power over even death itself. And if he has power over death itself, then I can put my trust in him because I know that I don't have that kind of power. And when I put my trust in him, the Spirit that he sends into my heart, calls me into a relationship with him where I say, you know what, Jesus, I want to follow you. You have called out to me. You have turned in my heart. You have turned my soul to recognize you as the one who's in, who's in control, who's in charge. Let me follow you. And no longer is our relationship with God characterized by fear and terror or by rejection and superiority. God becomes someone who we can know. See, at the bottom of the pit of self-realization, when we begin to recognize that in our own power, in our own judgment, time and time again, we would reject God, we would kill His servants, we would murder Jesus ourselves. At the bottom of that pit, Jesus stands waiting. And He says, I know this about you. I know this is the limit of your faculties. I know that your strength will never get you out of this place but I've been here before and I've brought others out as well and now my hands are extended to you. 
Trust in me. Follow me, Jesus says, and I will be your strength. I will be your certainty. I will be the one to walk with you through all of life's ups and downs, through all of the questions that you face, through the doubts and through the victories, through the certainty and the questions. If God is God and Jesus is his son, we can trust in his promises to be with us, to give us an easy burden, to give us a companionship and a family that expands well beyond those who are in our immediate circle of, of relationships and friends and family. God provides these wonderful things for us out of his divine love and mercy, but only after we recognize that if it was just up to us, we'd be just like the religious leaders. But because of his mercy, he has said, even in the face of that, if you trust in my promise, if you believe me when I tell you that I can forgive you, I will bring you into a place where you're no longer disgusted at yourself, but are able to enjoy a loving, intimate relationship with the very one who made you and be a part of his program to bring that kind of relationship to others. The owner of the vineyard sent his son into the vineyard who was rejected and put to death, and yet through his miraculous wisdom, God brought Jesus back to life so that you and I might have a relationship with him. And I pray that over the course of this summer, as we've been looking at Jesus' parables, that message shines clear most significantly for you. Trust in Jesus. Believe his promises. Repent of your own brokenness and walk with him each and every day of your life. Thanks for joining us this week and this summer, and we look forward to jumping into our next series with you about love, looking at some of the epistles in the New Testament. Have a great week.